If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is our number two of the World According to Zig podcast for March 5th. 2017. This is the program where we talk about the news of the week and sometimes the events of my often bizarre life and where we provide you with a full two-hour oasis of honesty and rationality in the desert of insanity and deceit, which is the American media, cultural, and political landscape. This being our number two, that means we usually are joined by a very special guest. We've been very lucky with our guests as of late, especially with regard to timing. I urge you to take a look at uh, last week's interview with the filmmaker Cyrus Narasta, uh, that uh, we had on Oscar Sunday. Uh, this week, our interview is also very well-timed, but for very, very different reasons. He's the author of a, a brand-new book called The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. He's also a professor of national security affairs at U.S. Naval War College and wrote a book called The Russian Presidency, which is going to be an interesting topic to discuss with him. His name is Tom Nichols. Tom, welcome to the World According to Zig podcast. Great to be with you, John. I I do want to talk about the death of expertise because it's outstanding and it relates so much to so many things that are going on in today's world. But uh, because of the news, and this is an ongoing news story, but there's been a lot going on this week, and because of your your area of expertise in national security and specifically your expertise in Russian uh, areas uh, of news. I I wanted to talk to you about that first, if that's okay. And uh, I guess my first question, Tom, is is, let's go backwards for what happened this week. What the heck should we make of President Trump's wiretapping allegations from yesterday? Can you make head or tail of this? Well, wow. No. And the first thing I'll say is, of course, I don't represent the Navy or the War College. I speak only for myself here. And speaking for myself, I can't make heads or tails of it. And I think Republicans in Congress can't make heads or tails of it. Um, I think, you know, the the president got out there and he tweeted, he saw something in the news or something set him off. And he made an an allegation that's really quite explosive that, you know, his predecessor personally ordered the wiretapping of a political candidate. Um, I suspect this is related to the stories that have been circulating for months about um, the feds getting FISA warrants to look into relationships between some of the people in that campaign and the Russians. Maybe. But, you know, the problem is these tweets come out at seven in the morning and, you know, we spend the rest of the day trying to make sense of them. So, uh, on that specific allegation made by the president, I, I, I don't have no idea what to make of it. Well, uh, but I, again, I suspect it's part of this larger question swirling around people that have been associated with the campaign, whether they've talked to the Russians, whether they've had inappropriate contact with the Russians, the kind of thing that brought down Mike Flynn and some of the other um, stuff that's been going on about the attorney general and other people. All right. So you don't you can't make heads or tails. I can't either. But that's never stopped me before. So let me let me try to, to maybe try to figure this out. And, and part of the reason for my confusion, and I'm curious if it's confusing you as well, is the, there's really only two major scenarios, as I see it, based upon Trump's tweets yesterday regarding uh, the allegation that, quote-unquote, President Obama wiretapped Trump Tower during the campaign. 
one, it's over this the Pfizer warrant issue, which would implicitly, if if Trump was smart enough to be able to to follow the connections, would effectively mean that a judge somewhere found probable cause of a potential crime or or influence of a foreign power or spying on behalf of a foreign power or something along those lines, which you would think Trump wouldn't want to focus on and wouldn't yeah, want to... Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't get that part because this morning he followed it up with basically daring Congress to investigate it. And, you know, it's... Uh, it keeps reminding me of that line from Dodgeball. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off. <laughs> because uh, you would think that's exactly the opposite of what you'd want to do if you really believe that a judge was out there issuing warrants. So I, I kind of don't get that one either. Okay, but- well, so so that doesn't make sense. That doesn't mean it's not what happened, but that doesn't make sense. So let's go to the other scenario. The other scenario is Trump is flat-out lying. And frankly, based upon... The reactions uh, from the Obama spokesman yesterday, as well as uh, some of the talking heads on the morning shows today, that's kind of where I'm leaning, is that that this never actually happened. And, and that Trump is going off of some conspiracy theory that, that got birthed by Mark Levin and Breitbart and is now creating a boogeyman for purposes that might be very relevant to trying to figure out what's really going on with the whole Russian investigation. But what do you make of that scenario? Well, I think there's a third option here, John, which is that Levin and Breitbart cooked up, um, you know, this nutty story, and that it's not that the president is lying, it's that he read it and he believed it. I mean, there's there's a third option here, which is that, you know, the president, like a lot of gullible uh, um, you know, talk radio listeners ha- has bought this theory. I mean, I remember I, I listened to that clip by Levin, and he, you know, Levin's very he speaks very carefully. He's ranting about we need to know what conversations were recorded, and then he adds the very important qualifier, if any. Right. Right. Well, well look. So it- you know, he basically says we need to know if this happened or not. But of course, the way it gets reported is it's and the way he, he you know thunders it across, and then it gets picked up in Breitbart and amplified is this happened, and it could just be, you know, that the president got a hold of it and he and he believes it and fired off a tweet that now you know the whole White House and the Republicans in Congress are going to have to spend the next several weeks cleaning up after. Well, in the other scenario, which I don't think either, I know I don't believe, and I don't think you do either, correct me if I'm wrong, but but one that a lot of Trump fans will absolutely believe is another scenario, which is that Barack Obama, without the authority of a court, ordered the wiretapping of, <laughs> of a presidential yeah, no. candidate at, during a campaign for which there's no evidence, and by the way, the the ultimate evidence in a rational world that that did not happen, not, not forget about the fact that it would be insane, but insane things do occur from time to time. But here's the proof. If that was true, the White House would not be saying, you know what, we're not going to f- comment any further about this. We're going right. to tell Congress this is their job. We're just going to leave this go and pretend that it never, we never said it. And hope it basically goes away and and put it on somebody else's lap. That would not yeah, that, be happening, right? That doesn't make any sense. But let's. I'm going to throw one. Uh, you got to throw one bone here to the folks who are inclined toward that theory. Okay. Let's remember that this is the Obama White House, where right. uh, you know the the IRS was weaponized against conservative groups, uh, and I don't think that came on direct orders of the Oval Office. But I think a lot of people senior to people like Lois Lerner politely looked the other way, uh, knowing that this was going on. I mean, there was there were there were plenty of hijinks. I mean, I, it really bothers me when people say, well, the Obama administration was completely scandal-free. No, it wasn't. Okay, but let me tell uh, you, but, but that doesn't mean that we then jump to, you know, the, and you left one thing out of that scenario, John. That doesn't mean President Obama said, hey, let's do something incredibly dangerous and illegal right. to sink an election that's already in the bag for Hillary Clinton, because right. that's what everybody thought. Right. That's an so incredibly important it, point. That's inc- yeah, it makes no sense. No, I, and I, I say this all the time with, with regard to everything involving uh, Trump and Russia, and, and I think your point is well made regarding Obama. People, I think it's remarkable how quickly we're forgetting how little chance Trump really had of winning 
So you have to take that into context when interpreting people's actions during a campaign and on both on both sides. But let me play devil's advocate a little bit. And I know you're not really arguing. I don't I don't I don't think you believe that Barack Obama ordered uh, without a court <laughs> without a court approving <laughs> no. wiretapping. But but let's let's address this issue of because a lot of people will, especially Trump fans. Oh, he's capable of anything. The IRS thing. Well, wait a minute. If the I agree that the IRS scan, scandal was a scandal, but why weren't Trump's tax returns leaked during the campaign if the Obama White House was really capable of that kind of stuff? Wouldn't that have been the first thing that would have happened? Yeah, that's a that's an excellent point. And you know the problem with conspiracy theories, and I say this in the book, um, conspiracy theories are always too intricate. They, they always violate Occam's razor, right? I mean, right. If you really, if you really had a rogue president. Uh, you know, Obama as a rogue president saying, I'm going to do whatever I can to screw over Donald Trump. There were so many easier ways than this Byzantine theory about, you know, FISA courts getting to Russians who have talked to people in Trump Tower that then lead to what? There's so much other stuff. I mean, Donald Trump's life, you know, and we'll give the president credit, right? He didn't expect to be president at 70 years old. So he's had a big, messy life that's been lived in public. There are a million other ways a rogue president could have gone after right. Obama. None of this makes, or excuse me, Trump, none of this makes any sense. And the number one way, just to be clear, would have been to release his would tax have, returns. Which and, is well, right. I mean, if you if you believe that Obama could intentionally weaponize the IRS, and, I, and again, I don't think that happened either. I think it was, uh, I think Obama chose not to look too carefully at what his subordinates were doing, which Fair is a different matter. Right. Um, but if you believe that Obama is capable of weaponizing the IRS, then leaking Trump's tax returns would have been – that would have taken 10 minutes. I right. mean, that would have been hitting a key on a computer and hitting send and then walking away. And be very so easy. This, and, 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 yeah, probably, no and, and probably devastating, if, if nothing else but to – Trump's ego and and uh, mental uh, well-being. So, um, all right. Well, I, I, I'm a big Oxum's Razor guy too, which is one of the reasons why I love the Death of Expertise, your brand new book. But before we get specifically into the book, I do want to delve a little bit more into the to the Russia Trump issue more sure. specifically, because obviously there was big news on that front this week with regard to Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General, deciding finally to recuse himself from any investigations which may or may not exist uh, involving this story. I, but I, if the president gets his way, it might be taking place tomorrow. Right, yeah, which is very strange and bizarre. I guess, yeah. I, guess the, I, have, I have several specific things I want to ask you about, but what is your general theory right now as to what you think really transpired between Trump and Russia? Do you have one that you're able to sure. articulate? I mean, I, I, and again, you know, I'm, I'm theorizing here uh, in the absence of hard information. First thing I'll say is what I think transpired between uh, Sessions and the Russians, which is practically nothing. I, I think this is, I think the Sessions story is really a nothing burger in a, in a, in a bigger something burger. Okay. Because um, I think the way, you know, that I mean, when, I, when you look at the way the attorney general answered that question and was able to parse that very finely, say, well, did I ever talk to Russians, you know, in a campaign mode as opposed to just being there as a senator? I, it's one of those inexplicable lawyerly answers. Truthfully, it's the kind of thing Hillary Clinton used to do to herself, right? She, you'd ask her a simple question, and you'd get this really lawyered-up answer that then people could pick apart for weeks, and it was worse than just telling the truth. Um, but I think what happened is that the Russians wanted to interfere in the election. I don't believe the Russian goal was to elect Trump. I think that was kind of a side benefit that they saw down the line, because I don't think the Russians believed that Trump really had a, a chance either. I think they were trying to smear the American elections as no better than anybody else's elections. I think they wanted to undermine a future Hillary Clinton presidency because they, did, they loathe her. I mean, the Russians really hate her guts. And, you know, the rest of it kind of just flowed out of that. I think there were people associated or hangers-on or people in the Trump campaign orbit who, who probably had con- – I mean, people like Page. Right. I don't know if you saw the interview yesterday. I did, and I want to ask you about that, Carter who Page. Who that guy that going on TV and talking that way was helping? Well, I mean, you're, you're referring it, to Carter Page, and I yeah. think you're referring to the Anderson Cooper interview that he did, which was yes. one of the strangest interviews I've ever seen. 
And I have to tell you, and, and it sounds like you might be in the same boat, Tom. Both the Jeff Sessions uh, situation and the Carter Page deal this week, which has created a lot more smoke on this whole Russia-Trump issue, in my mind, in a weird way, I now think we're getting to the point where there's so much smoke, there may be no fire. And what I mean by that is that in a world where there was really something devastating to hide, Carter Page would not be doing interviews with Anderson Cooper that were that bizarre. Well, but, you know, we've talked about Occam's razor, John. Let's also look at the other, uh, the other law whose name escapes me now. Never, um, never attribute to malice what you can explain by stupidity either. Right. Um, you know, I have no idea why Page decided to do the interview circuit because I ended up walking away thinking that there was a lot more there that I, I came away with it uh, from it with the opposite impression. Really? You did, okay. Tell me which why. Which is that watching this guy engage in these tortured locutions over and over and over again, I thought, well, there's got to be something there because. But, what, uh, but why is he? Just, but why is he doing the interviews though, Tom? I, um, you know, maybe there, maybe it's just not the. I don't know. Maybe these just aren't the brightest bulbs on the tree or something. Because if Trump, if obviously, if there's something really horrendous there, Trump knows it. Okay, you don't think that the president of the United States, Donald Trump, would be have the influence to be able to keep Carter Page off television? I I wouldn't have thought that the president of the United States would be double dog daring Congress to to investigate whether or not people on his campaign were being investigated by the FBI. Yeah, I, so and, and none this, of this makes sense to me. And I agree with, and that's part of why I'm fascinated, one, by the topic, and two, I, getting your take I, on I it. I suspect that people, I mean, you know, the Flynn, the Flynn business, um, you know, on the one hand, there's a, there's a lot of folks out there making, I think, a fairly reasonable argument that a lot of the stuff that hit Flynn and a lot of this stuff about Russia hacking the election is coming out of a kind of a Ben Rhodes war room you know, media campaign kind of thing. And, and that there's that. There's no doubt about that. Um, but I also think it, it seems to me that every time this question comes up, did you have, you know, connections to Russia that you should have talked about, that you should have reported, that you should have come clean about? The initial answer is always no. And then the next answer is, well, yeah, maybe I did. So, uh, you know, these the sum total of this, I, I'm not where you are yet. I still think that this is a lot of smoke, and it means that somewhere there's fire. Now that doesn't. So, mean, what would the fire be then, Tom? What well, you... I was just going to say exactly. That doesn't mean that somewhere, you know, we've got a videotape of Kislyak dropping a suitcase of money, you know, on a Georgetown doorstep somewhere. I, I think that it's all more subtle than that. I think, um, you know, people can make really bad judgment calls about who they're talking to and about what, um, you know, when it comes to campaigns like this, and then you know, find that, well, maybe that's not a conversation with a person that they should have been having it with. And then in the classic D.C. environment, you know, they're trying to back up and say, well, I didn't really do that. And, of course, the, the biggest issue here is that it, probably none of the in, individual things that have been done are going to be that shocking or difficult in themselves. It's going to be the covering up that's going to hang everybody. I mean, one, one, of the, one of the things that um, I've learned through my life that liberals always do is they always overplay their hand. And it, it feels to me like a lot of liberals are, are so shocked and horrified by the election that they, they, they want to believe that somehow there's going to be this magic wand that's going to erase yes. it. And I've been saying this for, for two months now that, that you know you and I you may remember I wrote a piece in the Washington Post a few weeks ago mm-hmm. where I told everybody to basically chill out that this constant search for a silver bullet that is going to immediately end the Trump administration is really not serving liberals well because in the search for that magic solution they're letting a lot of other things that are certainly worth objecting to especially if you're a democrat they're letting a lot of other things slide because they're so convinced that somewhere they're going to find this one, you know, the one loose log in the Jenga pile that's going to bring the whole thing down. And it, it's, and I don't think it's going to happen, mainly because, look, I, I actually think that they've got the, the focus, and even some conservative, anti-Trump conservatives, I think, have the wrong focus within the, this Trump-Russia affair. And I'm curious what you make of this. The focus, a lot of this has been on, was there collusion during the election? Now, that's obviously an important issue, but you're never going to prove 
that it made a difference or that it was right. decisive, especially when, when the allegation isn't even hacking into, uh, you know, election results. It was about hacking into the DNC emails and whether the Podesta emails had an influence. Look, I think all that's important and interesting, but it's not a game changer. To me, Tom, the issue I care most about is why is it that Russia seemed to want Trump to win? And why is it that Russia, that Trump appears to be compromised? By Russia and, and in his why statements. Is it that when people are asked a straight up question about their contacts with Russia, their first instinct is to lie. Well, see, I have a theory about that. See, and, and again, I, I'm a, as ardent but, a Trump. But let me just back up to and say right. I think you're you're a- absolutely right. And I have taken a lot of static on exactly uh, that same question of, uh, you know, that I mean, when I, when for example, I said that um, when people called for the attorney general resign, I said resign. What you know, talk about overplaying your hand. Um, so, you know, I, I agree with you up until that point, but I do think the Russia thing, um, I think David Frum has had a very good point that rather than a special prosecutor who, you know, is somebody who's supposed to go look for crimes, uh, that there needs to be some kind of a kind of 9-11 commission here, that you need to have a bipartisan group of people saying why, asking exactly what you just asked, why is Russia so interested in our elections? Why did they do this? How did they get away with what they did? But People blast me, you know, liberals who nonetheless uh, find a kindred spirit in me because of what I wrote during the election, blast me when I say, look, the Russians did not affect the outcome of this election. They really didn't. They didn't hack election machines. They didn't go write in ballots with, you know, secret agents all over the Midwest. They didn't tell Hillary Clinton. I was just in Wisconsin last week, you know, and it came up over and over again. They didn't tell Hillary Clinton not to go to Wisconsin um, you know, I mean, I, I spent a couple of days in Milwaukee, and as somebody pointed out, I've now done more work there than Hillary Clinton or Sheriff Clark. <laughs> well, right. Well, let me get back to my, my theory, though, on why it is that we're seeing all these people not tell the truth about their contacts with Russia. And I'm not, I, I'm not su- suggesting that I, uh, I know this to be, you know, a deadlock cinch case. I'm playing more devil's advocate here, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, here, here's a scenario I see. I see that Trump has made it exceedingly clear he is very, very insecure about the nature of his election victory. I mean, obviously, the, you know, the Electoral College baloney that he puts out is he can't accept the popular vote you know, uh, loss, uh, the inauguration crowds. He is so insecure about it and that the Russia issue is at the center of this insecurity. And so everybody in his orbit knows he hates this, right? So if in retrospect you had contacts with Russia that now look bad and would further this narrative, which the boss hates, don't you avoid that at all costs? Don't you avoid? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a good theory, but I think it's um, I think it's just a shade too complex because the fact of the matter is. You know, for example, with Flynn, I mean, Flynn could have just come out and said, yeah, I talked to the Russian ambassador. That's what you do when you're the new national security advisor. And this is not a big deal. Um, I don't I mean, I I think um, I think the bigger issue is that people are now kind of checking themselves and looking back and saying, hmm, did I talk to did I talk to guys from Russia that I'm, you know, maybe I shouldn't have been talking to. And again, it's also possible, and now I'm theorizing, that they were talking to people on the assumption that the, that Trump could never win. Right. That's another possibility is that, you know, if there were people who said, I seriously think I'm going to be in the White House two months from now. I can't have this conversation with you. Right. Um, so I, I well, think... Well, just kind of what I'm saying. Kind of, By the way, that's kind of what I'm saying. I mean, we're, we're, we're sim- saying similar things. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it's a combination of incompetence and kind of D.C. panic mode. I think I think it's very clear that a lot of folks who are in D.C. now never expected to be there and are, you know, got kind of called up from the minors really fast. And, and like Carter Page? Level of pitching. Like Carter Page? I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, I just, I still can't figure out what the point of that, I mean, right. you, you're worse off after you do an interview like that. I mean, I, I still can't figure out what the point I, of that, because I guess he did too. He did MSNBC, uh-huh. and that was a tire fire. Right. And then he decided to try it again. Oh, Anderson and Cooper was the worst interview I've ever seen. I mean, it, it, I, yeah. it, it was completely... In it's fact, up there. In fact, I'm not sure which is worse for Trump. 
if if Carter Page was a conduit to Russia for some sort of election collusion, or just the fact that Carter Page somehow made it into Trump's orbit, and and, and may which have- is actually, I would actually say that's the more important question because whether or not Carter, Page, I mean, look, you know, this is not the old Soviet days. There are a lot of people who have a lot of connections to Russia that are perfectly legitimate. You know, Mike, Ambassador Mike McFaul made a great point. He said it's not illegal to talk to Russians, and it shouldn't be. Right. Um, but right. the bigger question was, how did that guy make it into the inner circle of a future president? All right. Last thing on, on Trump, Russia, before we get to your book, The Death of Expertise. And, I, and this goes to, I think, um, part of the lack of focus here. To me, the focus here should be on Donald Trump. All right. Donald Trump is the president. And Donald Trump has been very sweet on Russia and Vladimir Putin in ways that are inexplicable to me. And frankly, Tom, just to be clear, because I'm not sure what the hell happened here. If it wasn't for Donald Trump's extraordinary overreaction to every single element of this case, I would think this is much to do about nothing. But to me, when you look at the way Trump has reacted up until and through this morning, it is the very definition of dust out protest too much. And to me, there's got to be, based upon his, his reactions alone to all this, there's got to be something to this. I don't know what. Do you agree or disagree? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it, it's, yeah, I agree that there, I, I don't know what the, the what is when you say there's got to be something to this. The, the something still eludes me. Um, but. I, I, it's interesting that in a campaign where the president, the, now the president, then candidate Trump, flip-flopped on every single issue. You know, I'm going to build a wall. Right. It's going to be a virtual wall. I'll, I'm going to kick all the illegals out, but I'm going to keep the dreamers. I'm right. going to overturn the ACA, but I'll keep the parts you like. The only consistent policy he had, like the North Star as a lodestone, was we have to be nice to Russia. Mm-hmm. And, it, it, you know, as Ambassador Burns, um, who's, you know, usually a pretty measured guy, uh, said just the other night on television, you know, Ambassador Nick Burns said, this is overturning the policy of every president since Harry Truman. And it seems to be the one thing that the president is determined to do is to, is to have a, um, you know, very positive, I don't even want to call it a positive, a very accommodating relationship with Russia. So... You know, the problem is that all of the, as you say, any one of these things taken in isolation, you would say, well, you know, that's just a, an odd story, or it's somebody whose pockets aren't as clean as they should be, or it's a president making bad policy. Um, taken all together, it, it makes the word Russia radioactive. And I, and I find that ironic, because for 25 years, I, I mean, I was an unrepentant Cold Warrior, but when the Cold War was over, I argued for better relations with Russia. Ironically, the people like me who for a long time thought there was a better chance of it are now saying the Russians have really closed that door. And the only person left who thinks that we should still be in that kind of relationship with Russia seems to be the president and his closest advisor. So couple that and the one thing we didn't mention as well, the change in the Republican Party platform, right. the influence of people like Paul Manafort. Right. I mean, the whole thing, just there's something wrong in there. I, to me... Using we started this conversation with Oxum's razor, uh, I might as well end it with Oxum's razor, and and that is, what's the most important thing to Trump in the world, uh, his wealth or the perception of his wealth, and to me, uh, that's probably at the root of this. That there's there's something whether it's in his tax returns or whatever, there's something regarding uh, Trump's wealth that he is frightened of. And uh, there have been a lot of rumors and speculation about that aspect uh, of his relationship with Russia, although there's never been any proof. Uh, and that's part of why people want to see the tax returns. But, you know, obviously we there's so much yeah. so much more we don't know than than what we do know, um, which is part of why I, I think the story has legs is because it's a mystery. People love a mystery. Well, and, and the and, president keeps giving it legs. I mean, right. this is, you know, this White House operation. I mean, I I. You know, I didn't spend that long in Washington, but I, I've worked in politics. Uh, worked in politics for a fair number of years in my uh, misspent youth, and so many of these stories are things where I kind of wince and say, "Boy, that this this is something that, you know, was a wastebasket fire, and now the whole room's burning down." Um, and I think some of it is just the way that this White House handles these kinds of stories. I suppose there's one other theory we should consider, and that is the that for some reason that we just don't understand, Donald Trump really admires Vladimir Putin. 
that it is just a kind of personal, right? You know, one-on-one thing. Because um, I think the the other thing that the president operates on, he's a very transactional man. He decides who he likes and doesn't like, and that just kind of sticks. Um, it's it's also possible uh, that he's just gotten some bad advice and he doubles down. I mean, I think you know the, the what the president's fans admire about him is that he he sticks to what he wants. What it, what the president's detractors worry about is that even when it's a bad idea and, and his ego gets involved, he doubles down. And by the way, that you know, David Frum was on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, and that appears to be David Frum's theory that that he just likes Vladimir Putin because he admires him because Vladimir Putin is who he would like to be, which is scary enough. Uh, yeah, that's and, not a good alternative, really. And, and by the way, in, in line with that, I thought. With regard to the the wiretapping tweets from yesterday, I thought the part that got overlooked and maybe was the scariest is that you can now interpret that Donald Trump believes he has the authority by himself to wiretap citizens. Yeah, Yeah, you would think that somebody would walk in and say, you know, as well, Lindsey Graham actually took a good shot at it when he said, if this happened. You know, it's interesting because conservatives seized on this as an aha moment. Graham said, if this happened, it's the biggest scandal since Watergate. But if you look at the video, Graham's laughing, and and so is the audience Right. when he says, if this happened. Because for it to happen would be one of the most overtly criminal acts since the 1970s. Right. But I I truly believe that Trump now thinks, well, if Obama did it, that must must mean I have the authority to do it, too, which is— Pretty darn scary. All right, let's get to your book, uh, The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. There's so many reasons why I like this book, but the primary one is the timing of it coming after Trump's election. How much of this book was written uh, because of the phenomenon of of Trumpism having taken (laughs) over the Republican Party, and how much of it was coincidental, Tom? Well, the God's honest truth, John, and and I've uh, mentioned this um, many times before as well, uh, is that almost none of this was written um, with Trump in mind. The very first piece I ever wrote on the death of expertise was a kind of an angry, uh, kind of venting, therapeutic blog post I put up on my now uh, closed-down website, um, and I, where I ca- talked about this problem of the death of expertise, and that was about three and a half years ago. And then the article that appeared in The Federalist was about... Uh, two and a half years ago, and I started writing the book. Um, Oxford approached me to about a book project shortly after that, and so I had the I had actually sent in the last draft probably in late summer, and then it came back to me for one more revision when it was clear that uh, that Trump was going to win the election, and so there I, I changed some of the language in there to indicate that you know the president had won the election. Uh, but almost, you know, 99.9% of the book really had nothing to do with the election at all. It was simply my concern that Americans have become so willfully ignorant and so in, uh, almost intentionally uninformed about their own political system that the country was going off the rails because of it. Well, there's no question that Donald Trump took advantage of this, and he was open about it. I mean, saying things like, I love the poorly educated. Uh, and you know, uh, all I know is what's on the Internet. I mean, he, he is the personification uh, of the death of expertise because he knows nothing, uh, yet he believes himself to be an expert on almost everything. H- how much do you attribute the death of expertise to the election of Donald Trump? Uh. I think that this uh, a significant amount of it, and I think that this was brewing even starting in the late 1960s and through the 1970s. Uh, but you're right that the Trump campaign seized on this because what they did was they fused, and this happened, by the way, I should add, in the Brexit decision last summer, uh, where the people who wanted the people on the Trump campaign and the people who wanted the Brexit vote melded the word expert to the word elite Mm -hmm. and were able to kind of trigger that sort of class uh, resentment by saying that the P and I I feel feel this particularly keenly because I certainly did not grow up an elite in any way, Uh, but they melded those two words together. And in fact, the president during the campaign said, 
The experts are terrible. Who needs them? You know, they, uh, I, what if I didn't have a foreign policy advisor? Well, you know, for the first few weeks uh, of the administration, we saw exactly what happens, where you make an ill-advised phone call to China, and then you have to walk it back. Uh, you open up a spat with Mexico, and then you have to walk it back. And I, I think one thing that's interesting is that despite running on this anti-expert campaign, once in office, the president decided, oh, maybe I better have some guys around who, you know, really are experts and know what they're doing. I mean, he's got the head of a the, one of the world's biggest multinationals. He has a four-star general. He's got a three-star on his national security. I mean, he, you know, he has gone out and gotten experts. But there is no doubt that he appealed to people by saying, I talk the way you do. I believe the same kooky things that you do. I read the same, you know, bad websites that you do. And that spoke to people, the, these, the people who said, I don't want to read the New York Times. I don't want to read the Washington Post. I don't want to read, you know, um, uh, I don't want to watch PBS or, or the evening news. I want to watch, you know, t- cable television after 7 p.m. And I want to get every, all, everything I know from my Aunt Rose's internet Facebook memes. And, and I don't want to ever be told that I'm wrong about anything. And I think the other thing that the American voter really found a home with in this campaign was narcissism. Um, You know, when the president said, I will give you everything, I am the only one, there were a lot of people out there who have said, you know, the hell with all that Jack Kennedy, ask not what what your country can do for you stuff. This is about me now. And that was a really effective double-pronged attack that said, you're the most important person in the world, and everything you believe is right. Basically, what you're talking about here is that the and in death of expertise, as the title makes it very clear, is that we now live in a world where it's it, there's actually a negative to being an expert on something. That absolutely that, that somehow being and and that's why the 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 uh, the, the the equating expertise with elite because if you're elite then you're out of touch you've been given everything we right. hate you you're the one you're, you're you're the person we're blaming for our sorry lot in life and so there's anger there and so now we're living in the in the upside down world where you actually know stuff that's a negative right yes and uh, you, you hit on something really important there when you said to find the people to blame for their lot in life because when People would argue with me, well, I mean, I was writing the book, and you know, I was very public about the fact that I was working on this because I really invited people to debate me about it. They'd say things like, well, you experts caused the housing crash. Right. And that would just stop me dead in my tracks because I'd say, well, except that the housing crash was obviously caused by people buying houses they shouldn't have been buying. Good point. Right. And, I- you know, I mean, you... Yes, the experts and the smarty pantses and the economic wizards are the guys that figured out how to make a buck off of bad mortgages, but that's because people were taking out, you know, bad mortgages. Right. And, uh, and it got laid off to you experts, or, or you experts got us into the Iraq War, even though we were against it. And, I, of course, I was alive then. I, I don't remember a, a big public outpouring. No against the Iraq war there that came afterwards. Right. Well, let's put it more in political terms and, and more directly to Trump. I am firmly convinced that a huge percentage of Trumpsters, as I referred to them, uh, although that's you know probably not the most accurate word. I, I, I actually prefer Trump tards at, at times, depending on you know, the worst of them. But, but the Trumpsters out there, I'm convinced uh, that they think that John McCain and Mitt Romney should have won and would have won if only they had been, you know, stronger and attacked more. And and look, n- neither of them were perfect. They were not perfect candidates, but they were the best we had at the time. And I'm convinced that m- almost anybody else would have gotten crushed far worse than McCain yeah, the, the- or, or Romney. But they think that the experts chose them and chose wrong. Therefore, it's our turn. And now, by the way, they're vindicated, and we're never going to be able to tell them for the rest of our lives that they're wrong about electability because they're always going to be able to throw Trump in our face, even though it was a, a fluke. He had no. Well, again, and again, you see the confluence uh, or the or the intentional muddying of the term expert and elite. Right? The experts didn't pick John McCain. 
the experts didn't pick Mitt Romney. I mean, you know, the experts. Well, they kind of did. I mean, well, uh, well, but wait, the Republican, the Republican Party primary process picked them. Right, but certainly they were the Mitt Romney. In particular, was the favored candidate of the GOP elite at the time. There's right. no, there's no doubt about it. Now, John McCain, less so, because remember, McCain was the guy who got um, unceremoniously pushed out of the way for George W. Bush right. on the electability issue. The experts, every one of those campaigns had experts in them. Every one of those campaigns, whether it was McCain or Romney or Cruz or Rubio, um, had a foreign policy advisor. They had an economic advisor. They had experts in them. The experts did not, you know, I, I always kid people uh, about thinking like we're the, the guys in uh, So I Married an Axe Murderer, right? We, we're the pentaveret, and we meet up at the meadows, and we fix everything. Um, it doesn't happen that way. Uh, and in fact, this time around, where, um, you know, the, the, the Trump campaign finally steps forward and says, you know, we're going to blow the Republican Party um, nomination out of the, out of the water, I, I think a couple of things are important to remember, and I think I, I know you probably agree with me on this, uh, what the Trump supporters, I will charitably call them, uh, believe is that Trump just blew away the competition. They don't look at the fact that there were 17 people running, right. that the primary was a complete mess, and that the Democrats did everybody the ultimate favor of running right. the most unelectable, dislikable right. Democrat in the history of modern politics. Correct. And that, you know, it had a, had 100,000 votes gone a different way in the Rust Belt, the rest of us would be sitting around saying, well, you know, look what you did. No, that, uh, and that's an incredibly important point. I mean, if the wind blows in the other direction on Election Day, I mean, almost literally, if the wind blows right. in the other direction, we are having a four, probably eight-year-long conversation about how the Trumpsters gave us Hillary Clinton for eight years exactly. because everybody could have beaten her. And, uh, and, and it's a fluke. It is a fluke of history. And, and it cannot be emphasized enough. I mean, and, and if the experts were that smart and had that much power, they would have sat down with the Republicans right at the start of this and said, okay, of you 17 people, at least 10 of you no-hopers need to drop out right now. Well, but see, that was because Trump was underestimated. Because Well, but it, but it didn't. My point is it didn't happen. I mean, the same people who think that the experts are omnipotent you can't have it both ways. You can't say that the experts control everything and they're omnipotent, but that Trump was so clever that the experts were helpless in the face all right, all right. because it just doesn't work that way. I, I hear you. Now, with regard to the death of expertise, Tom, uh, were yeah. you surprised, because I was, <laughs> that, the, that this problem was so prevalent within Republican presidential primary voters? No. Uh, but I'm also going to not go down the road of simply saying that, well, you know, Republicans are dumb and Democrats are smart because. Oh, no, I know, always knew Democrats were dumb. I just thought some of I just thought we had fewer dumb people on our side, the, but, but we don't. The problem. Well, but the problem is that Republicans. Here's an interesting way to think about it. If you look at Facebook, Democrats are more likely liberals, I should say, are more likely than conservatives to dump a friend over politics. The reason for that, however, <clears throat> is that conservatives are less likely to have liberal friends in the first place. Okay. And so I think part of the reason that this death of expertise problem afflicted conservatives more heavily this time around is because they are more prone to uh, their echo chamber, talk radio, uh -huh. uh, cable news. Um, yep. You know, keeping a very tight lid on their Facebook friends. They t conservatives tend to have fewer friends who disagree with them on Facebook, uh, and so they're they're just more prone to bad information traveling through them more quickly. With that said, you have to remember that there's a lot of really dumb stuff that liberals believe, and that I, as I make a point in the book, oh no, no, I, hey, Tom, I, 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 I was not making the statement that there are more Republicans that fall into this category. I was just wondering, were you surprised how many Republicans oh, fell into well, this category? No. I, I mean, no, because I've become um, deeply depressed about this whole subject, <laughs> and I think that it afflicts everybody, uh, or or far more people in the country than I, I really wanted to believe. I mean, I was, when I started researching the book three years ago, I, I kind of wondered if, I mean, I was almost like I was testing my own hypothesis. You know, I started doing the research, and I right. said, well, 
let's see if I'm, you know, maybe I've overstated this problem. And I, the more I dug into it chapter by chapter, the more horrified I was uh, at just how, you know, unbelievably rampant this problem has become. And uh, it's made me somewhat pessimistic overall. But yes, I think in this election cycle, it definitely hurt. Um, I can't say hurt, but it afflicted conservatives somewhat more and in a different way. Although it, and 10 minutes of talking to the Bernie supporters um, would also dispel that illusion because then you, you find that there are a lot of people who are on the far left of the Democratic Party oh, no. who believe things I, that were just ridiculous. I understand. And, and you've already hit on, I think, one of the, the causes for why this problem has exploded. And I would like to believe that it's gotten worse uh, in, in recent years. And that's because of the fragmentation of the news media. And now everyone has an ability to enable their own stupid ideas. Or their, Absolutely. Uh, which, the fragmentation of the news media, you know, when I, when I first started telling people about the book, they'd say, oh, well, it's the Internet, right? You're just going to blame it all on the Internet. And no, I mean, this predates the Internet. And one of the things that really drives it is the ability to just graze and cherry pick out of media sources you happen to like and to build your own little echo chamber. And everybody is doing that now. Uh, somebody asked me recently if I was really saying that we were better informed when we only had three networks and three evening newscasts. And I've come to the reluctant conclusion that, yeah, we were probably Absolutely. Uh, better informed and more judicious in the way we thought about politics when we only had three news broadcasts Absolutely. instead of this wall-to-wall you know, cable um, echo chamber stuff going on. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I always say, and I'm someone who's de- dedicated most of my life and career to combating media bias, which is absolutely real, but I have always said, give me 1984's media over today's, even though we don't have any real major conservative outlets, at least we had a seat at the table and at least people were substantive. And oh, by the way, what happened in 1984 in the election? We crushed everybody. Uh, right. Reagan won in a but, massive landslide. And But let's, let's call ourselves out about something here, John, because I think some of your listeners may say, sure, two, you know, two middle-aged white guys are lamenting the days uh, when the news was controlled by a bunch of Middle East, uh, middle-aged uh, white guys yeah, on the East Coast. Right. And th- there's a lot of merit to that. I mean, you know, the fact of the matter is that the news in 1980... No, no, it wasn't was, perfect. It was not perfect. It wasn't perfect. And no, it was definitely the curated view of a particular no, no. class of American society. It was but less I, bad, I though, back, Tom. It was less bad. <laughs> oh, I always come back and say, look... You can call it curated or edited, but it was also a time where an arms control treaty with the Soviet Union was considered more important than the size of Kim Kardashian's rear end. Right. No, and that's exactly and that's right. A better time. Exactly. I'll take substance. I'll take biased and substantive over over what we currently have. Over a perfect, biased and crazy. Exactly. A, a yep. perfect example of this time is something we've already referred to. I guarantee you that. A huge percentage of Fox, especially Sean Hannity viewers and talk radio listeners, will believe for now on that Barack Obama personally had Donald Trump wiretapped. Facts There's no be, doubt about it. Facts be damned. That's yeah. what they will believe. And by the way, that belief has devastating consequences for our the faith in our entire system of government. And yep. and and so and it's it's bullshit. I mean, it's, it's, there's no evidence, no logic for it, and there's never going to be any evidence of it, but it doesn't matter. Because, and they're going to believe it forever now and because, because the charge has been made and Hannity has echoed it. Um, I, I had a very sad moment just after the election. I, I um, went home and I talked to my best friend that I grew up with, and uh, he had voted for Trump and I hadn't, and we got talking about it, and he said, well, we have to do something. He said, Crime and unemployment are out of control. And this was, I, I grew up in Massachusetts. And I said, you, that's just not true. I said, it's simply, it's factually not true. And I said, I'm your best friend, and you just have to trust me. He said, he, and he said, you're just wrong. And I said, where are you getting this? And he said, Hannity, man, oh, he tells me the truth. Yeah, well, it's see, and the, 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 I believe, and I'm curious what your reaction is to this, Tom. To, to me, the root of this is that the, it is a human reality that people will believe what they want to believe, that, that, that this is inherent in human nature. And if the belief makes you feel better about yourself or better about your, your situation, then almost 
100% of the time, you will believe it. Facts yep. are irrelevant. Truth is irrelevant. I have had one of the reasons why your book resonated with me so much, Tom, is that I, I have in my life, I've tended to focus on um, specific stories, usually very big stories where I become, for lack of a better term, a real expert. Like I live it. I know every little bit of it. Uh, from the OJ trial through to Clinton's impeachment to, to 9-11 to the 2008 election where I did a m- movie called Media Malpractice to the whole Penn State scandal thing. I'm an expert. Oh, I can't tell you how many times people I have debates with who know nothing. They know nothing about the subject, and they will invariably come to the final conclusion. They'll say, you know what? You just know more than I do. But that doesn't mean you're right. Now, what is, well, that, what is that all about? Well, what, what's really one of the things that spurred me to write this book is not that people doubt experts. It's that people now think they're smarter than experts. It's not just that they say, hey, John Ziegler, you're a journalist, and I disagree with you. It's now more like, listen, John Ziegler, I know you're a journalist, but let me explain journalism to you. And that's the part that I found when, when professionals and, and experts started writing to me, because I, I did a lot of interviews for the book, uh, more than a few of them that had to remain anonymous, especially from doctors. Uh, they said, you know, it's not that people come in and say, I doubt your diagnosis or I want a second opinion. It's that they come in and say, listen, here's what I've got and here's what you need to do. And let me explain your profession to you. And that's, that's the kind of narcissism the overwhelming kind of the average person can do anything um, approach. And, I, and going back to the election, that really, that was, you know, this is where we are now, right? You don't need people with expertise in anything. Your gut, go with your gut. Your feelings are enough. Take a flyer. Um, it, one of the things that really depressed me is that is to find that uh, a lot of research now is showing that if you tell people they're wrong and you show them, they don't change their minds. They actually doubled down. No, that's true. I've seen that in my my own uh, experience. But on the other hand, playing devil's advocate, and you deal with this in the book, The Death of Expertise, part of this is on experts because they've been wrong a lot. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so talk about that. Well, I have a whole chapter in the book called When the Experts Are Wrong, and not just by being wrong. I mean, there are, are I talk about expert misconduct, fraud, plagiarism, inflation of credentials, uh, claiming to be members of learned societies, uh, you know, on and on and on. And the fact that experts are just human beings. I mean, look, pilots are experts. Occasionally, pilots will crash an airplane because they stink at piloting. It's going to happen. There are lawyers who will end up letting you go to jail because they weren't good lawyers. There are doctors who accidentally kill people. Um, And I think one way that experts haven't dealt with this well we don't talk to the public about how we correct ourselves. We tend to keep that a secret, right? Or we tend to want to argue that out among ourselves so that when somebody has to retract a journal article or somebody gets disciplined for misconduct, it happens and we correct the problem, but we don't talk about it to the public because we don't want to harm our, our image as experts. I think the other problem, and this is where, again, experts and the public share some of the burden, the public reacts so strongly to any expert mistake that experts withdraw from talking to the public, and they will only talk to each other because they understand the terms of the conversation. And I say in the book that experts need to recover their courage here. They need to go out and take their lumps and to talk back to the public about when they're right just as much as owning it about when they're wrong. And I think we're not as good at that. And I I actually detail a whole section of the book where I step forward and say, look, here's a book I wrote you know, 15, 16 years ago, it had a conclusion in it that was really wrong. And here's me, you know, telling you, showing you that experts know how to do this. Um, But you're right, experts have gotten things wrong. But I also think the public seizes on expert failure as a way of ignoring experts. It's like when experts say eggs are bad for you and then have to change their mind. The public says, aha, so now I can have bacon cheeseburgers for breakfast. Well, Um, that's not what it means. It means that doctors weren't quite right about one thing. It doesn't mean they're wrong about everything. And as is so often the case in this conversation in your book, you can you can lead that directly back to Donald Trump because Trump's fans will believe nothing the media says about him because they didn't predict his election. So because they were wrong about his election, there's nothing that the news media can say about Donald Trump that will impact them 
at all because they and, were and wrong the about media, it. And, and, John, the media has to, uh, you know, has to own part of that problem because they were so eager to, to hang Trump early in the administration that they rushed out there with some stories that turned out to be wrong. And, of course, the public you know, focused on that and said, aha, you got this story wrong and you got that story wrong. So, therefore, all of your stories are wrong. And that's the problem. The media needs to own the stories it got wrong as a reminder to the public that most of the time they get the stories right. I'm curious. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. I, I, I think that um, that with regard to Trump, the news media sees him through a certain prism. And so therefore they interpret everything uh, incredibly negatively. By the way, I think that prism is correct, but sometimes that leads them to exaggerate or maybe uh, misreport that's stories. Job. That's and it's not their job to, to you know, pitch it as a negative story. It's their job to to tell the story and then to let the democratic process, you know, haggle it <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, but that doesn't get ratings. Come on, Tom. That doesn't get ratings. We know that. Well, uh, right. It'll all click. Right, all right. Uh, now, Tom, a couple last things. Uh, you, I'm curious about the subtitle of the book. Uh, the subtitle of, your, of the Death of Expertise is The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. What do you mean by the campaign? Who, who's running the campaign against knowledge? We know it's, we, uh, you're the first person to ask me about that subtitle, John, and I really appreciate it because my editors and I, we, we settled on the death of expertise early because that's what uh, the, the article I'd written and we thought it kind of captured what I was talking about. We kind of had a long discussion. I mean, we really thought hard about what should that subtitle be to try to, you know, send a message about what the book's about. And we started talking about things like the anti-vaccine movement, where it's a, there's a group of people you know, one of whom may end up leading, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. may end up leading a presidential commission, for all we know, right. um, who together exchange information and strategies for attacking medicine. And they're not just, these are not parents' advocates or patients' right advocates. These are people getting together and saying, we are going to prove that medicine is wrong, and we're attacking this established knowledge. Um, the same thing with people who... Uh, you know, the, the, some of the fringier attacks on uh, the American economic system to say that, you know, the whole American economic system is, you know, rigged and we ought to go back to printing gold dollars or go back on the gold standard. And, you know, the things that are more or less uh, widely accepted and have been proven to work and are peer reviewed and that, that have gone through this process of argument, established knowledge does not mean the final word on anything. It means the best case that experts using the methods of science and inquiry and critical thinking can reach. And the campaign against it tends to be by people who act almost entirely on emotion and ego. Well, that's 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 what I meant by that subtitle. Okay, fair enough. And and there's no question that emotion is is driving almost all of this because, um, you know, my, my view on this whole issue is that people who have not succeeded in life, largely because of their lack of education, uh, are angry about it, and and now they they want a target for their anger. And those elites who uh, you know went to uh, you know Harvard or Yale or or some other elite institution and went to college, uh, thus some they're somehow now the bad guy uh, because they've been wrong about a few things. And Trump gives all of these people. A, a a lightning rod through through which to funnel and all of this to get even with them right yes i mean and, and i i think that what you're talking about in this book is uh, a huge percentage of what drove trumpism and it's not just because i believe that the average trumper not all trump voters obviously you know about half of his voters were traditional republican uh, voters who probably were holding their nose when they did it. But the, the I'm talking about the half that were really gung-ho about it. Those people don't know the basics of uh, our politics, of civics, of our Constitution, uh, of the way the world works. They've never... By the way, this is kind of off the, off the subject, but I actually think I would love to see data on this of the true Trump fan. How many of those people have ever known a truly rich person? I don't think they've known anybody who is truly rich. See, part of the reason why I know that Donald Trump is a fraud is I've known a lot 
of very rich people. I've played golf with them. I've dealt with them, you know, in a lot of different ways. These are no better people well, than, you know, than anybody else. Bring that up because one of the things I push back against is this notion that experts all live in a bubble. I mean, I grew up. Um, my parents didn't, you know, and I've told this story before, but m- my parents didn't finish high school. I grew up uh, in a kind of poor working class neighborhood. So this notion that somehow we all are these, you know, Ivy League silver spoon kids is just ridiculous. Some of us are just people that went to college and worked two or three jobs. But the the bubble issue, you're, you've hit on something really important. The bubble issue goes in both directions. People say to me, well, you, don't, you live in, on the East Coast. You live in a, I say, wait a minute, my bubble includes about 60 million people. Right. You know, real America is not a small town of 5,000 you know, somewhere in the Midwest heartland. That's more of a bubble, uh, and, and I think you're right. Those people say, well, you know, educated elites. And, of course, the first thing you want to say is, have you ever met any of them? Right. Um, you know, have you ever had that experience? People say, you've never been to the heartland of Indiana. Right. And you've never been to, you know, the suburbs of Boston. I mean, this is, this is a problem where everybody has segregated themselves and makes a lot of judgments, but I, I think that I, I think it's really important to point out when it comes to trusting experts that the bubble argument goes in both directions, and that's a real problem. All right, last thing on the death of expertise, I was curious to see that uh, either I guess it was two, two maybe three days ago that the comedian Seth MacFarlane tweeted a, a very a strong endorsement of your book. Uh, how did that happen? You know, I I appreciate that Seth MacFarlane thought the book was good. Um, I'm I was a little surprised because there's a part in the book that kind of zings celebrities who get out of their lane about politics, which MacFarlane has done on a few occasions. But um, you know, I think it's I don't even know if MacFarlane knows that I live in Rhode Island. So I mean, because I suppose you could argue that he's he's given a shout out to a hometown guy. Uh, but uh, I, d- I don't know how that happened. Um, it was, you know, it was flattering, but uh, I-, I don't actually know Seth MacFarlane, uh, but I'm always glad to have the plug. <laughs> and, and, and how has the book rollout gone? Uh, what, what, anything of note that, that you want to share? Well, it's, it's um, been, I have to say, I've been kind of surprised by um, the level of attention that it's gotten. It, it clearly has hit a nerve with a lot of people. Um, just as, you know, the anti-expert campaign of the past few years and, inclu- and the election campaign did, I think a lot of folks, um, I knew the article had, had hit a nerve with a lot of people, and the book is kind of hitting the same nerve. So um, I've been doing a lot of um, uh, talking with folks and doing a lot of interviews and traveling. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's been really gratifying, and the book's been getting a really uh, warm response from a lot of folks, right, from well- a lot of different folks, because you get – when you've got you know Seth MacFarlane on one side and Sir Lawrence Friedman on the other, uh, you're hitting a pretty wide audience. Yeah, that's true. There, well, so. well, uh, Tom, I wish you the best with the book. It's the called the Death of Expertise, and we appreciate your time. And please keep in touch. Thanks, John. Thanks All for right. having me. All right, that thanks, uh, Tom Nichols. The book is the Death of Expertise, and that will do it for this hour number two of the World According to Zig podcast. Next week. On our number two, really looking forward to our guest because we will be breaking some news. Now, in a rational world, it would be fairly significant news. Uh, I'm very realistic about how it will be treated in this news environment. But uh, long story short, the Penn State administrators who were accused of covering up for Jerry Sandusky's crimes, uh, the story exploded five and a half years ago. I've spent way too much of my time over the last five and a half years investigating the real story of what actually did and did not happen. Long story short, they're finally going to be facing trial later this month. And one of those facing trials, the former president of Penn State, Graham Spanier. Well, unbeknownst to most people, uh, he, after the scandal broke, he was investigated by the federal government to have his top secret security clearance renewed. There was a full six-month report done by the federal government after the scandal, which interviewed everybody. And a federal investigative services agent fully recommended and was approved for Graham Spaniers' top-secret security clearance by the federal government to be extended after all of this investigation. And there's a whole bunch of stuff involved in that, which really proves that this whole concept 
uh, the media's narrative of a cover-up at Penn State is bullcrap. Well, next week, I'll be releasing that actual report, which has never been released before. I will also be releasing the proof that the security clearance was extended. And on this podcast next week, we'll be doing the first ever interview with the agent who did the report himself, who's never spoken before. So looking forward to that next week. By the way, last week, definitely check out at freespeechbroadcasting.com our hour number two interview with filmmaker Cyrus Narasta, who said a lot of very interesting things about the movie business and the Oscars, and some of which turned out to be rather prescient because the interview was done actually before the Academy Awards. And uh, some of the things that he said were, I thought were really dead on, especially uh, at the end of that hour. So check that out at freespeechbroadcasting.com. As usual, I ask of only two things of you. That's a poorly worded sentence, but I think you know what I mean. Uh, the first is that if you like the podcast, share it, Twitter, Facebook, what have you. Tell a friend. And if you're one of those people who actually sleeps at night and when you sleep, you use sheets, do yourself a favor and listen to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.